wrapped up the book of Ephesians last week. What a what a great study that has been for me. I uh, share with you guys that there's, there's a bunch of stuff that ends up on the floor. It doesn't get into the message, but uh, I was just blessed in my studies there. And, and I've been looking around and thinking, you know, there is, there's just so much going on. And part of what I believe the vision that the Lord has given me uh, as an under-shepherd here at this place is that this body could be a place to come in, to to just let go of the things of the world, the, all of the stuff, and for a little while to just focus our hearts on him. And, and I've been thinking, you know, there's, there's just all of the stuff that's going on, all of the mayhem and all the craziness all around. And I, I started thinking, you know, Lord, where do you want, where do you want us to go next? <laughs> As I have been in prayer about that for the last few weeks, I, I just sense, you know, I, I think that we need a good love story. <laughs> and, 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 you know, the book of Ruth, I, I, it's kind of like the chick flick of the Old Testament, you know? I don't know if you guys, <laughs> I've never heard characterize that. That's free. But it's like, you know, it's just this divine love story. And on the surface, it's a love story between a young Moabite woman named Ruth and a, and a Hebrew guy, uh, an Israelite named Boaz. But on a, on a much deeper spiritual level, it's a love story between God and people. Ruth is a story of divine redemption. It's a story of restoration and it's a story of hope. And it starts with a very dark backdrop and with a lot of loss. As you look at God's amazing providence here, it's his providence in light of things going really, really wrong. When things could not look more bleak, to the women in this story, when they couldn't experience more loss, Naomi literally could not experience any more loss. We'll see that this morning than what she was faced with, that God was working ahead of her as he's often working ahead of us in our lives in the circumstances that we have perhaps this morning. And that he and his divine providence, he's always working ahead of us and, and he's always putting things forth that we may be confounded by our current circumstances, and yet I just see in, 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 in taking an overall view of this lovely book that God's at work, that he's moving, he's aligning circumstances, he is, he is doing things that cause us to draw close to him, especially when things are difficult. So I'll get into the stats here before we, we go too far. I just want to talk about... First of all, names in the Bible are significant, and we're going to look at them a, a bit more here in, in a couple of minutes, but it's starting out with the, with the name Ruth, and the name Ruth literally means friendship or refreshment, and, and so here is this woman. Her name is friendship or refreshment. I mean, and you see very often with words or with names in the Bible that they indic- indicate character, and so she has a friendly, a refreshing countenance, presence about her. Uh, and I don't know how God does that. How does he get these people their names and then they turn out that way? I, I'm not sure. But I do know that in each of these people's names, as we go through, <laughs> you'll see that it's really indicative of some things that are going on in their lives or indicative of who they are. Now, the, the name Ruth, the word Ruth, is mentioned 12 times in the Old Testament, and every time is here in this book. It, it, her name doesn't come up in any other writings. It's mentioned once in the New Testament, and it's very significant because it's in the genealogy of Messiah in the Gospel of Matthew. We'll read it in a minute. But an interesting fact that as you look at the Old Testament, there are two books that receive their names from women, and Ruth and Esther. Now, Esther is the story of a Jewish girl who marries a prominent Gentile when she married King Ahasuerus, the king of Persia. The other is a Gentile woman who married a prominent Hebrew uh, when Ruth marries Boaz. I just think it's an interesting thing. It's like, it's kind of a switcheroo going on there. So Boaz, we see, and we'll see here, And if you look at the last verse in the book of Ruth, you see that Boaz was a descendant of the Gentile woman Rahab. 
And there's little doubt that this is the same Rahab was that was Rahab the harlot of Jericho, the one that allowed the guys to come in. She let the cord down and the whole story there, beautiful story there. Well, she gets integrated into Hebrew culture at that point. She is adopted. She's grafted in. Very much like we see in the book of Romans where the apostle Paul talks about the Gentiles being grafted in. That we're the wild branch. <laughs> and some of us are wild. But the point is, is that Boaz is a descendant of Rahab. Uh, and I just see God's grace seeping through the pages of Scripture where he is so definite with these lineages that he lays out. And that it's like you go through these lineages, like the one in Matthew, and it's like Jewish, 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 Gentile. Huh, okay. Jewish, Jewish, Gentile. Oh, but and it's because God was in his grace. He's integrating the Gentiles into the line of Messiah. In Matthew 1, verses 5 and 6, it says, Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Salmon was Boaz's dad. So Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David the king. So here we see that eventually when Ruth and Boaz get married, Ruth has two mothers-in-law, one from her uh, <laughs> um previous marriage to to the gal that that she has on one side she has Naomi on the other side she has Rahab which I think is just an interesting mix both of them Gentile women so here Ruth another Gentile enters the lineage of Christ as Boaz's wife so uh, going on with with some background on this book the author of the book of Ruth it's largely thought tradition says it was the prophet Samuel. Samuel was the last of the judges. And we know that this book takes place, as we'll see here in verse 1 in a minute, that during the, the period of the judges in Israel's history. Samuel was the, the last of the judges, and then he sort of changed his ministry to being a prophet. <laughs> and, and so uh, it, that's what's thought. We don't know for sure. Now, when this book was written, again... <laughs> I'll tell you what, I think I looked at 10 commentaries and none of these guys agree with anything. <laughs> so I'm going to say it is not certain. That doesn't diminish the fact that it's part of God's word, that it's included in the canon, which means list of divinely inspired scripture. So uh, all of that, uh, just uh, some by again, by way of background, so that we kind of can locate this book uh, in God's word. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. <clears throat> now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country. The word country here literally means fields. doesn't mean that they went to the capital of Moab. It means that they went to the fields of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. So I, I want to spend some time and unpack verse 1. There's a lot that's going on here that really helps us to get a grip on the story. And, and we get it on the front end, uh, just to take some time and look at the things that are happening. First, he says, in the days of the judges. Now, uh, if you're a student of God's word, you probably know that the, the period of the judges was a very dark period in Israel's history. Uh, it, it takes place uh, it's the account of, of Israel's behavior between the death of Joshua, the one that God used to take Israel out of the wilderness and into the promised land, and from there until they instituted a monarchy because the, the, the people demanded a king. It was, and it, with Saul, the first king, when Samuel anointed him, he turned out to not be so good. <laughs> and it's sort of one of those, be careful for what you want because you might just get it kind of a things. But this is the period of the judges. It's between Joshua and Saul. So the function of the judges was they, they had sort of a dual purpose that uh, they were military leaders when necessary. They, were, they would be pressed into service and they would lead the country in battling off the foreign people that were invading them. Often those foreign people were invading them because it was God's judgment against them for their <laughs> just total apostasy at times. But they also, in times of peace, they, they served as local rulers and they administered political and legal justice. So that was the judges. Now, if you have read through the book of Judges, you see that there's a very clear cycle 
in that book. And in this cycle, I'll read, this is what it would look like. The people would be in a, in a period of peace. Things are good. And prosperity comes along. And they would begin to move away from God. Well, things are good. We've got all our stuff. They would start to put their trust more in their stuff and more in the foreign gods that the people around them were bringing in than they would in Yahweh. And so God would judge them. So it would go from peace to prosperity to apostasy to judgment. And God, as I mentioned, would use these other nations. They would come in and oppress them. So oppression. And then the people would cry out for the Lord, repentance, and then restoration, and then peace again. And then they would prosper, and then they would go apostate. And and if you looked at the book of Judges, if you were to graph it, it would look like that. It it says they just go from one low to the next high to the next low, and it was like they're not getting it. Well, it's during this period that the book of Ruth was written. So it was it was a frequent period of, or a period of frequent lawlessness and anarchy. Uh, the last verse, well, in Judges seventeen six, in the middle of the book, and also the last verse of the book says, "In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes." As a recipe for disaster, there was no one to govern them, and they were lawless. They were. Uh, they had the ingredients of crazy making and there was a lot of strife and turmoil in the land. So the second thing we look at here in verse one is he says there was a famine in the land. Now, God had firmly warned Israel. He had told them, look, don't stray from me. In, in Deuteronomy twenty-eight fifteen, he says, but it'll come to pass if you don't obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And I'm not going to go into the list. There's a pretty good list. One of them is famine, that he would use famine to get his people's attention to draw them back to him. That was by design. All right. So you look at this and you think, well, there's a famine in the land. Why didn't Elimelech, the guy here, why didn't he go west? Because Israel, Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Bethlehem's about eight miles south of Jerusalem. And so it's up in the, the, the top of the country. It's very much like here where you have Eastern Oregon where it's desert and just wilderness and stuff out there. And it, the, you get down and you go towards the coast where we are and it's pretty fertile. Well, that's kind of the geography in Israel. So you think, well, why didn't Elimelech go there? <laughs> it's because they were hemmed in. The Philistines... We're a coastal tribe. They probably came from Cyprus. I'm not going to go into their history, but the Philistines, they inhabited the coastal lowlands in Israel. And so Elimelech's thinking, well, we don't have any food. The famine is getting pretty tough. And we can't really go west because (laughs) the Philistines were very aggressive towards the children of Israel. They did not like each other at all. They were warring constantly. You look at Goliath a little later on, and he comes from the Philistines and all of that. So that was out. So Elimelech decides he's going to go east. When he does, when he goes to Moab, I want you to, to understand, he wasn't going to visit. <laughs> this, was a, this, was a, a, this was a move. Elimelech took his wife, took his kids, and they left town. They were done in Bethlehem. They were going to relocate. Uh, I was talking to somebody after the last service. There was a difference in foreigners uh, in, in, in strangers, they, the Bible calls them strangers. You were either a foreigner or you were a sojourner. If you were a foreigner, you, were, you retained your citizenship of the country from which you came and you just lived in another country. If you were a sojourner, you kind of gave that up and you now were a permanent alien resident. That's what Elimelech became. He left Israel. It's a definite departure from the promised land. Uh, of Israel. He goes into the wilderness, and, and, and interestingly enough, he goes into the same wilderness that God had delivered Israel from generations before. He's going backwards. These are clearly steps in the wrong direction. So, in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, uh, we read, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not to your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. I think about James. In the book of James, James says, come now, if a man says, 
I'm going to go to such and such a city and spend a year there and, in, and engage in business to make a profit. And if that man doesn't say the Lord willing, he's a fool. Elimelech, I believe, was being foolish when he embarked on this journey. So the next thing we look at from verse one, we're still in verse one. Because <laughs> I started out with, I was very ambitious to do the whole chapter this morning. Not going to happen. We're going to go through the first 14 verses. So we look at Moab. Now, Moab is interesting because when we look at Moab, it's a person, a people, and a place. And we have to, in order to understand the backdrop of Ruth, we have to really get connected with what the Moabites, who the, who Moab is and, and what the Moabites were about. So first, looking at Moab, the person, Moab was a son of Lot. Now, after they escaped from Sodom, uh, Moab and his daughters went to a cave. They got drunk and his daughter seduced him. Both of them got pregnant. Both of them bore children and the oldest daughter had a son that she named Moab. That's where Moab comes from. It's, it's sort of like you can get the girls out of Sodom, but you hadn't quite gotten the Sodom out of the girls at this point because they're molesting their dad. Anyway, so that's who Moab was. Now, as far as being a people goes, they were enemies of Israel. They were really aggressive towards the Israeli people, and they didn't like each other at all. And they were avowed enemies. They were pantheistic. In other words, they served many lowercase g gods, but primarily they worshiped the god Chemosh. Now, again, names are significant. The name of their god literally translates destroyer. So it's like, oh, good, let's go worship Destroyer for a while. And, and I mean, just completely strange, but th- that's what their God's name was. And the scripture speaks of the abomination of Moab. In 1 Kings 11, 7, verse 7, King, Sol- we see King Solomon, remember, God warned Solomon, he said, don't you go after other women. And I'm paraphrasing, but he said, don't do it. They will draw your heart away from me. And so what does Solomon do? He goes after other women. And they influence him to the point that he has monuments built to their gods in Jerusalem. And in 1 Kings eleven seven says that he built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab is what it was called. He did that with other lowercase g gods, other gods from his foreign wives. He got into this whole deal where his heart had cooled off on the Lord and he... and. To this day, if you go to Jerusalem, there's the Temple Mount and then the Kidron Valley and then the Mount of Olives right here, just downrange from the Mount of Olives is called the Mount of Corruption. It's still there. However, Josiah in 2 Kings 23 tells us that Josiah, when he was doing his shallow reforms, he was well-intentioned, but his reforms didn't stick, but he tore that down, the thing that Solomon had put up. So Chemosh is associated, he was associated with human sacrifice. He's a bad dude, the destroyer. Uh, he was associated with Baal worship. Some say that he was synonymous with Moloch. Uh, and, and if you remember the story of Moloch, it was the, the, the big bronze statue that they put down in the, the Valley of Hinnom, which was later the Valley of Gehenna, the same place, but different in Old Testament, New Testament. And if you read, like in Jeremiah, it says that they went to the place of Tophet. Tophet means drums. What they would do is they built this great big huge bronze statue and they would stoke a fire inside of it. You know, the back was open and they would stoke a fire and get the arms that had arms sticking out like that. They were red hot. And then the guys would start playing their drums. They would start beating their drums and they'd beat them so loud for one purpose. And it was to drown out the screams of the children that they sacrificed to Moloch by putting them on the red-hot arms. Horrible God. Horrible acts of violence uh, against the people of Israel. And they participated in it. They also promoted sexually deviant practices. In Numbers 25, we see that Israel was camped in an acacia grove out in the wilderness. And they committed harlotry with the women of Moab. So... All of this is just to kind of set up. This is where Elimelech's taking his family to that country. In Revelation 2.14, Jesus in his seven letters, his letters to the seven churches in the first century, he, when he's 
giving John, the, the Apostle John, his, his, he's dictating the letter to the church at Pergamos. He says, I have a few things against you because you have there those who have hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak, now Balak was the king of Moab, taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. So all of this, and, and there's much more in God's word that we could go, I mean, if you go do an exhaustive study on Moab, you'll see there are some, there are some people that God didn't want around. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, God says this about Moab and Ammon. The Ammonites were just to the north of Moab, and we're not going to get into them. In, in, in Deuteronomy 23.3, we read, An Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Now, that's pretty strong. He's saying, Moabites, no, <laughs> not going to happen. He says, because they didn't meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. Nevertheless, I love that, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing. If you remember the, the story of Balaam, he, he gets out there, he's, he's hired by the king of Moab to curse the children of Israel, and every time he opens his mouth, he blesses them. And it's like... Okay, I tried, King, you know. Uh, but he says, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. I like that. Here, in, in back in the depths of the Old Testament, God is professing his love for his people. He's saying, look, I protected you from this creepy people and these creepy guys. And when they tried to curse you, I just turned it around because I was being strong on your behalf. He said, you shall not seek their peace nor their prosperity for all your days forever. So how does God feel about Moab? <laughs> kind of clear. All right, because it's a little problem, but it's not really a problem. How could Ruth eventually integrate, a Moabite woman, how could she integrate into Hebrew society? Would she be violating God's word? We're not going to look at that this week. I'll just leave you hanging with that. We're going to get into that because we find the answer in verse 16 of Ruth chapter 1. And it's a powerful thing that's going on there. So we'll save that. But that's Moab, a people, okay? Moab, the person, Moab, the people, and now Moab, the place. Uh, Moab, if, if you look at Israel, there's Jerusalem here, there's Bethlehem, like I said, about eight miles or so south, and and then they would have to travel north to get up to the north edge of the Dead Sea to the east, travel east, and then drop down into Moab. Moab was the territory that lied, it, it, it lay due east of the Dead Sea, which is a little south of Jerusalem, but the only way you could get there is to go up to the top, cross the Jordan River, and drop down in. So Elimelech is taking his family and they're going for a really long walk because it's not, it's not a quick and easy trip. They would have to go through some pretty perilous passes to do this. The point in all of this is Elimelech shouldn't have left the promised land. Uh, he, and, 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 and if he was going to leave, the last place he should have gone to was Moab. Had he ever read Deuteronomy 23 himself? I mean, yeah, we didn't call it chapter and verse at that point, but they had God's word at this time. They had, Moses was, he had dictated these things to the people. Essentially, Elimelech would lead his family from a land of the land of the living to a place of death and barrenness. Verse two, the name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife was Naomi and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. There was another Bethlehem that was in the northern part of the country. And so uh, the writer here, Samuel, or whoever it was, wants to be clear. This is the Bethlehem that's in Judah, that's south of Jerusalem. And they went into the country, or as I mentioned, the fields of Moab, and they remained there. Again, this is a permanent change of address. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, folks, names are significant. I love looking at the names of the people in this story. As I mentioned, Ruth means friendship or refreshing refreshment. 
Elimelech's name, which seems to be betrayed by his actions, but his name was, my God is king. We'll look at that as we go along. Naomi, her name translates pleasantness or sweetness. Now, they're two kids. I don't think, I haven't met a lot of people whose name were Malon or Chilion, but uh, probably because what their name translates, Malon's name translates sickly or sickness. It's like, hey, sick, come here. Uh, or you're sick. Anyway, Chilion translates pining away. Uh, and so here they're two kids, sickly and pining. <laughs> They're, it says that they're Ephrathites of Bethlehem. And, and Ephrathra, uh, it was the region around Bethlehem, sort of like the county and the city kind of a thing. Uh, it, that translates fruitful. Bethlehem, as you may know, translates house of bread. So they go from the fruitful house of bread to the bleh of Moab. I mean, they were really stepping out and getting involved in some things that I just don't believe that that that, they, that Elimelech was making wise decisions. Uh, verse three. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. Now, I don't want to directly connect this. I mean, there are times where you you know you you see that this is going on in someone's life, and and then this happens got to be careful about marrying those two things because it's not always cut and dried. We don't know what God's heart is. Oh, those people, you know, I remember when the AIDS epidemic broke out years ago and everybody was, oh, that's God's judgment. Well, maybe for some, but you can't make that statement and, and just have it cut across the board. God is who he is. He is a gracious, loving, forgiving, redemptive God. Often we go through things and we don't understand it. That's the point here in this story. I don't understand why Elimelech died, but I do know what's certain is things didn't get better when they changed residences and moved to Moab. They they got worse. So now here's Naomi. She's left to care for their two boys, sickly and pining, (laughs) and... She's a widow in a foreign land. If you understand that culture, an agrarian culture, they lived on what they could do. They lived on what they could grow. And and here she is now. She's a widow, and she's got two young boys, and she's trying to figure out. She doesn't have friends. They're in a foreign land. And so she has just signed up for a hard life. It says in verse 4, they took wives of the women of Moab, her two boys, and the name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they dwelt there about 10 years. This was not in obedience to God. Again, God says, you know, don't have anything to do with the Moabites. And not only do they move there, Ruth evidently put her amen to the boys marrying foreign women, falling into the same sort of a trap, potentially, that beset Solomon when he would become king later on. So uh, he had commanded the Israelites, don't marry among the pagan nations around you. Keep yourself pure. Verse 5, then both Malon and Chilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. So think about it, folks. Life was tough during the famine. Elimelech says, well, Honey, let's move. Let's take off. I, I, I know this place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's called Moab. What do you mean, Moab? I thought, no, 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 I got it. It's good, it's good. <laughs> they get to Moab and things get worse. So her, her husband dies and she's like, how do I do this? How do I make a li- How do I provide for my boys? And as her boys grew up, she would rely on them more and more. We don't know what age they are. Perhaps they were already of age to where they could go out and work in the fields and all of that, and that she was taken care of. Now they die. So she'd lost her husband. She's raised her kids. Now she's faced with the darkest, most painful days of her entire life, the deaths of both of her children. 
Added to that, she's the childless matriarch of these two childless women. So the only thing worse than being a widow in a foreign land was being a childless widow. So here the three women have no means to survive. There was no one to support them. They had to live on the generosity of others. Naomi didn't have any family in Moab, and there's no one to help her. They went from bad to worse, and their situation became desperate. Verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Now, I want you to note something. It doesn't say, Naomi heard that the famine was over. It says that Naomi heard that the Lord had visited his people. She's thinking. She's, there, there's a lot going on beside, behind the scenes here. I'm convinced. And she's connecting the dots, so to speak. And she's saying, you know what? Maybe this was a mistake. Living outside of the land of promise, Naomi hears of God's distant blessings. And she's coming around where she's saying, you know, I need to get back. Verse 7, Therefore she went out from the place where she was and her daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So she's not passive about this. She could have stayed in Moab and, and, and wished things got better, but she takes this blessing of the Lord that she's hearing about, and she takes it to heart, and she acts on that. That's important. She's not passive about the things of God. She hears that he's blessing. She wants to be a part of it. She needs to be a part of what he's doing, what he's up to. And so she says, we need to go back. She steps out in faith to return, to step back into that which God had for her. As I was looking at this, it reminded me of the story of the prodigal in Luke 15. Here's the prodigal. He had gone to his father and, and demanded his share of the inheritance. And, and you know, he's like, I'm going to load up the four by four and scoot out of town. It says he went to a foreign country. Many people think it was Moab. And he goes to a, a foreign country and there he squanders it all. And he's, his life just goes totally bad and, and all of that. And he's there feeding pigs. Now, and a Jewish kid feeding pigs, not a good occupation. So, He's there, and it says in Luke fifteen seventeen that when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare? And I perish with hunger. I'll arise and go to my father. So when he came to himself, it's significant in Luke 15, in the parable of the prodigal, it's significant here because Naomi essentially is doing the same thing. She's coming to her, she hears about the blessing. How many of my countrymen have bread enough to spare? I think I need to be part of that because I am still a Hebrew. I'm still part of the covenant of Israel. So uh, in verse 8, she says to her um, two daughters-in-law, Go and return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with me, uh, with the dead and with me. So, it says that in verse 7 that they, she, she went out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So now, you got to remember, this is a long walk. So probably what happened was they got to maybe the border of Moab. I don't know. Maybe there was a certain rock that was a <laughs> checkpoint. I, I, it doesn't tell us. But they're on their way. The three of them are on their way. They're traveling back. To Judah. But Naomi is bothered. She's troubled in her heart. She is looking down the road. Perhaps she's thinking, she's wondering, she's worried. How are these Moabite girls going to be received in Judah, in Israel? I know what God's word has to say. Perhaps she's wondering, how are they going to get by? They don't have husbands. And the, the Hebrews are not going to want to marry them. I know what God's word has to say. <laughs> She's torn. She's torn between what would be best for herself. These girls could help her. She's an old woman. She is beyond remarrying. She says that further on. She's beyond childbearing. She's not going to have more kids. And she's thinking, these girls really are my only hope from the standpoint of being able to get anywhere in this life. 
And yet she knows that that would be the worst thing in her own heart. She thinks it's the worst thing for the, for the girls. She says, the Lord deal kindly with you. She uses the name of Yahweh here. That's important. That's it's significant because she's thinking about the Lord. She's, she's heard about the blessings and now she's beginning to, she invokes his name when she pronounces a blessing on these girls. And she's saying, go back to your families. You'll do far better there. What she's essentially doing here, she's being others centered, uh, pronouncing this blessing on the women. And, uh, you know, about 1400 years later, a, a guy by the name of Paul would write this. In Philippians chapter two, Paul says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, all about me, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others as better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. And folks, that's what Naomi is doing. She'd be far better off with their help. She'd be far better off with their companionship. She'd be far better off with their love. But she believed that they would be better returning to their families. Now, I want you to understand something that's going on here. Naomi's lost her husband. She said goodbye to him. He's dead. She's lost her two boys, her sons. They're gone. And now when she's telling these women, she's going to send them back to Moab, send them back to their families. She knows what's ahead for her. She will have lost everything and everyone. She knows that in her own mind, yeah, we see the end from the beginning. When we read these things, we look in God's word. And if you know the book of Ruth, and a lot of us do, you know that things get really good after this. But that's not the case at this moment. She's there on the road or with the girls on the, on the way back. And she gets this to this point. She's like, I can't, I just can't reconcile this in my mind anymore. These girls have a life ahead of them. And if they go with me, they're surrendering that. And yet, if I go on alone, I've lost everybody. I've lost everything. I don't know how I'm going to even eat. I, there's no way I'm going to have a man. So you've got to understand the vice that she's in. You've got to see that this is really, really tough stuff. And she's grieving still. The loss of her husband, the loss of her boys. And grieving now the potential loss of her daughters. But she's got her mind on their best on their interests. She says in verse nine, the Lord grant you might find rest each in the house of her husband. And she kissed him and they lifted up their voices and they wept selflessly, still grieving. She says, go find another husband. And that, can you imagine how hard that is for her? Uh, and, And guys, and I don't want to get overly personal here, but I remember when my daughter went to heaven she was 32 years old. And I knew that her husband wasn't, he, he, how can this guy be single the rest of his life? I loved Matt, his name. And I remember thinking, he's got to go on with his life. He's got his whole life ahead of him. And, and I praise God now that, yeah, my daughter, Jessica, was the love of his life and, and all of that. And yet, as he went forward in his life, he's happily married, has a wonderful wife, a little boy. I rejoice in that. But I'll tell you what, that was hard. It was hard to digest. And, and I wrestled with that because I knew I didn't want these things and I didn't want to see what was going on. And yet I knew what, what had to be best for him. It's very much what Naomi's talking about here. You girls, you need to go find another guy. When she says, go settle down with your husband, she's talking future. She's talking, you need to do this. You need to get on. You need to be able to be fruitful and, and productive in your life. But she knows that by doing that, by sending them away, she's completely alone. And she's alone at this point. When she's sending them back to Moab and she's headed to Judah, there wouldn't be any phone calls. There wouldn't be any emails. There wouldn't be any letters. There would be no contact. She's saying goodbye. I can't imagine. And her pain at this point would be visceral. It would just be that deep, visceral pain. It's like, God, if I could wake up from this nightmare, I would. But she's living it. Very often, we live it. There are times in our lives that we, we experience significant loss. And if you haven't, you will. Unless you're the object of someone else's significant loss. It happens 
It's part of life. And we're either plugged in to the author of life and we can at least make sense out of it. That we can, as, as we did when we came to the Lord's table this morning, that we can find hope in the middle of loss and pain. This is a great story, but I'll tell you what, it starts out pretty rough. The intensity of this moment, it's difficult to capture, guys. But put yourself for a minute, put yourself in Naomi's place. There's three widows here in this scene. They're all childless. There's no provider. Their old life with all of its memories, and they would be plentiful memories, were behind them. The future is unknown, and it looks bleak for all of them. Verse 10, and they said to her, surely you will remain, you'll return uh, with you. We will return with you to your people. So they're saying, Naomi, we're going to go. We want to go with you. They love one another deeply. That's a given. You see that. It just soaks through the verses here. Practically speaking, their love would not put food on the table nor a shelter over their heads. And Naomi knew it. She knew that it was an impossible situation. Verse 11, Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Now, that's a weird sounding verse. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because you've got to understand Hebrew law. You've got to understand Hebrew customs. She's saying, look, you need to go back. There's no more kids in here. <laughs> and, and, but if you look in Deuteronomy chapter 25, the law of Moses gives instruction on what happens to widows. And it's called the, the Leveret Law of Marriage. And, and what it is, Leveret marriage was a type of marriage in which the brother of the deceased man is obligated to marry his brother's widow. That's what it says in Deuteronomy. I'm not going to go there. We don't have time, but you can check it out yourself. The term leveret is from a Latin word as we translate God's word, and it means husband's brother. So now in Matthew chapter 22, the Sadducees, who were vocal opponents of Jesus, challenged Jesus about this very law. And in Matthew 22, 23, it says the Sadducees who say there's no resurrection came to him and asked, saying, teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were with us seven brothers. (laughs) This is where it gets complicated in their minds. Like I said, they don't care. They don't believe in the resurrection. They're just trying to trip him up. Uh, It says there are seven brothers and the first died and he had... Uh, after he had married and having no offspring, he let his wife uh, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, which we don't believe in, by the way, uh, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. <laughs> They're thinking, we got him now. <laughs> I love Jesus's response. <laughs> it leaves them scratching their heads, which he did regularly. Uh, that's just one of those things. It's like, he's my hero. But, and in verse 29, it says, Jesus answered and said to them, you're mistaken, not knowing the scriptures, <laughs> nor the power of God. Okay, let's start off with this, guys. You don't understand the scriptures. You don't understand God. He says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. That doesn't mean we become angels. He's saying that there's a whole different dynamic. They're like that. The angels live in the spirit realm. They live in, in, in that place. I'm not going to go into all of that, but essentially they're challenging him on the leveret laws out of Deuteronomy. So here in our story, since both brothers had died, Naomi's laying out the practical facts. Verse 12, she says, turn back, my daughters, go. She's like, she's pushing them now. She's saying, go, get, just go. I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, which she doesn't, she's hopeless at this point. If I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, if I got married this minute and I got pregnant tonight and I was going to have some babies, would you wait for them till they're grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? I don't think so. You're young girls. She's saying, look, this thing is broken. There's no way to fix it. Get it through your heads, girls. You have to go. And, and she is being very insistent at this point. But something that's interesting here, as we go on in verse 13, she says, no, my daughters, for it grieves me very much 
for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. This is the bitterest drop in Naomi's cup of sorrow. She's still thinking about the Lord. She's connecting things. She's going further in her understanding. She's thinking, God has turned against me. Have you ever been in such a stressful situation? I've talked about it recently. Or you think, I'm going through all of this. God must be mad at me. It's not the case. It's not the case. I don't believe it's the case in our lives. He can't be mad at me. If I am covered by the blood of the lamb, if my life is hidden in Christ, God will never be mad at me again. His wrath has passed over me. That's the point of the cross. That's why the blood covers us. And for her, she's saying the hand of the Lord's gone out against me because she understands now. I shouldn't have gone to Moab. I shouldn't have encouraged my boys to marry Moabite women. And now look at what's happened in our life. She's thinking, well, this whole thing is just a train wreck and it's on me. She's heartbroken. She's guilt ridden. She's looking at her circumstances and thinking God is against her because she doesn't yet know what God has in store for her. Folks, we can slip into the same thing. We can be going through very difficult things in our lives. We can be going through real hell on earth. And I'm I'm not saying that as a curse. I'm saying we can just be going through it. And we can start to think it is hopeless. It's futile. Nothing's going to work. Nothing's going to happen. And we fail to realize that God is working ahead of us. He is always working ahead of us. We must keep that in mind. It's an essential aspect of faith. God is working ahead of us and he's working ahead of her. She doesn't know it yet. So she takes on this guilt. Yes, was there an element of truth in what she's saying? Yeah, she's, she is definitely doing business with the Lord for allowing herself to get so far from him in moving away and encouraging her sons and all of that. She's taking responsibility for her own backslidden heart here. And that's a wonderful thing. Notice here that she's still headed toward God. She's still headed towards the promises. She's still headed back home. If she was bitter, if she was angry towards God, she would likely have gone the other way. I don't want anything to do with that. I don't want to face that. I don't want to face the people I know back in Bethlehem. All that. No, there's none of that here. She's not going further from the Lord. She's returning to him. And when we look at the hand of the Lord has gone out against me, here's a a quote uh, from a commentary by John Corson that I I came across uh, that I love. He says, not true, Naomi. Yes, you felt the brutal, bitter repercussions of being in Moab. But God is not against you. He has a good plan for you. He has a divine design. He's at work. He takes even our backsliding blunders and is able to transform them into beautiful blossoms. It's an amazing thing. It's called redemption. And that's the road that Naomi's on. That's the road that Ruth is on. They don't know it yet. They're living this. We see, like I said, we see the whole thing. But as they live through this, Naomi, she is just feeling it's hopeless. It's futile. I brought this down on us. What a mess. She'll soon experience God's providential hand and at some point realize part of his plan all along was to simply draw her to bring her home so that he could work in her, prosper her, that his will for her would be revealed and his will for Ruth as well. This is part of his, the road for redemption for them. What does the road for redemption look like in our lives? Every now and then I brush off my testimony and I think, Lord, you are so good. Well, I was so far from you. I was getting involved in every brand of religion I could find, trying to figure it out. You were just graciously, patiently waiting for me. And I remember one time when it, when it dawned on me that God will allow tough things in our lives to do what he's going to do. Part of my testimony was my eight-year-old daughter getting thrown out of a VW bus going 60 miles an hour, head over heels down the highway. I was tucked under the dash. This is what was related to me because <laughs> I was gone uh, with a, an 80-year-old woman and, and somebody else. And, and yet she went head over heels down this highway. And she got up and she brushed herself off and she walked over and sat down on the median. That's the power of God. 
That's God allowing tough things into our lives. And yet, does he do that miraculously? Every No, he doesn't. I, I don't want to live from one miracle to the next. But the miracle of my salvation is every bit as much as my daughter being unharmed, getting bound, bounced down a state highway. He's in the redemptive business. He's redeeming our life. He has redeemed us and he is redeeming us. Do you understand that he is allowing things in our lives? He does things because he's drawing us closer to him. Do I? Yeah, I remember writing when my life was so low. I I can relate to Naomi in this place. And I remember writing one time, were it not for the lessons that one can only learn when one's life is pressed in on every side, I wouldn't wish this on anybody. And I meant it. But God was redeeming that. I look at what God has done and taken countless lives from ruin and wreckage to redemption. That's the God we love. That's the God we serve. Verse 14, they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. Now, Ruth and Orpah both, they loved Ruth. They had the same feelings for her. But Ruth acted on that love differently. And there's a good lesson in here for us. Because, folks, feelings are great. God created us with them. You know, I I love looking at my wife and having warm, fuzzy feelings in my heart and all that. I mean, they're great. Emotions are great. Be careful. Feelings can deceive us. I don't know how many times over the years I have written a letter. I am really upset about this. Boy, I just ticked off or never, and I'll tell them and I'll just write the whole thing out and then I'll just not send it. <laughs> we got to be careful because I, it's, there's value in saying I'm going to sleep on it because when I'm not emotionally wound up and I can look at that thing objectively, I'm like, you know what? I just need to give these people grace. Boy, I've been a bozo or something like that because there's a place where we have to allow the grace of God to come to bear. We want to be exact. We want to have our, we want justice. No, you don't want justice. Believe me, you don't want justice. Not from God. If we got justice, none of us would stand. We want grace. We want to have grace. But when it comes to feelings, I was thinking about this, you know, some people doubt their salvation because it doesn't feel real. I, I know many times over the years, dealing with a brand new believer, with somebody who's just given their life to Christ, and, and, and I'll be talking to them to say, you know, there's this and that. And I'll say, look, you're going to go home and you're going to wonder if that was real. You're gonna, and, and the enemy will be right there on your doorstep trying to convince you that you just had some emotional hype, some emotional response. Don't be deceived by your feelings. It was real. And God wants to invade your life. Some people struggle because it's like they struggle to believe that God still loves them because they've sinned, because they don't feel his love. It's not based on how you feel. It's based on his faithfulness. And the Bible tells us that when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus himself. Father, don't count that to their account. That's on me. He belongs to me. She belongs to me. It's not how I feel. I have to go with the certainty that I have from God's word that when I sin, when I mess up, when I blow it, it's not how I feel because I feel terrible. I feel bad when I snap at my wife. Oh, pastor, you snap at your wife? What about? I'm not going to tell you. But (laughs) the point is, I feel bad, and, 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 and I should, but it's the conviction of the Holy Spirit, not bad feelings. It's, it's the conviction I want to act on. Some people give in to temptation because sin feels better than obedience, doesn't it? The passing pleasures of sin. The writer says in Hebrews 12 that Moses, he could have stayed prime minister of Egypt, but he chose to be identified with these Hebrew slaves rather than to endure the passing pleasures of sin. Sin is pleasurable. If it wasn't, it wouldn't be a temptation. It'd be a no-brainer. <laughs> no way. But those temptations come, and when we say no to them, it might not feel as good as the sin to be obedient. But don't go with your feelings. They deceive us because sin offers a momentary gratification. Sanctification is what God's after. The point is it's about actions and not feelings. Orpah kissed Ruth. And when she kissed Ruth, she was kissing her goodbye. She was saying, I'm going back to my family. 
I'm going back to my gods. I'm going back to what I know. We'll see that next week. Ruth's clinging to Naomi was an entirely different case. Ruth was in that embrace, proclaiming her love, her loyalty, and her allegiance to her mother-in-law. She said, I'm going with you. As we wrap up, as I mentioned, life throws things at us. We go through things. There are times, and I'll tell you what, I've thought about this a lot, folks. In recent months, I've thought, what would it be like to be going through this, the pandemic? What would it be like to be going through this, looking out and seeing anarchy in the streets, night after night after night, all over, globally? What would it be like to be going through this, political mayhem? Are you serious? You know, I mean, and I'm not going to even get started. <laughs> but the point is, what would it be like to be going through any of these things and not know the Lord and not be a child of the King and not know that he makes sense out of these things? Because I know, like coming to the Lord's table this morning, proclaiming his death until he comes. I know this life isn't all that there is. I know that my life is hidden in the beloved I know that he has a plan and a purpose for my life. And it's not going to always be warm and fuzzy and feel good. We see that here. But what would it be like to be living this life without him? And if that's you, if you have never, perhaps you're watching online or you're here, if you have never asked the Lord to forgive you for your sins and to have Christ come into your heart to be your Lord and Savior, and I'm not talking about just a term, I'm talking about your Lord, You give up your rights to your own life and you say, I'm yours. That's what Lord is. It's not not a title. It's a reality. If you want Jesus to be Lord in your life, you turn from the old life because you're not making sense of it and you're thinking, you know, I don't understand it, but I'm kind of making sense of this. I want more of this. I want more. I want to know Jesus. You pray a simple prayer. I'm turning from this old life. I'm turning from the life that doesn't have answers. I'm turning from the life that there's pain and hardship and no understanding of what's going on in all of that. And I'm seeing that there is purpose. There is a way for me to understand more. I might not understand the details, but I get the big picture. And the big picture is I'm headed for heaven. When this thing's wrapped up, we get to get out of here. Praise God. But if that's you... Don't wait another day. Give your life to Jesus. Repent of your sin. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to come in. And I guarantee you, he will. He'll give you new life. He'll give you new meaning. He'll give you new purpose. He'll give you understanding because he opens himself to you that you would understand the things of God, that you would understand life. Powerful. As for us, As I mentioned, we're going to be here at 7 o'clock tonight. Please come and pray with us. We're going to pray as a church. We're going to pray individually and as a church. We'll pray till the last person's finished. And um, we're going to do that again tomorrow night. We're going to do it again on Tuesday night. Because we know who we serve. We know that we serve a loving God who's in the business of redeeming. My prayer in all of this is that his redemptive work would be accomplished in people's lives. They'd see the futility of living away from him, that they'd see the futility of trying to figure it out, scratching their head day after day, trying to make sense of it all, that they could enjoy and come to know true peace. Not the peace. When Jesus said, you know, my peace I give to you. It's not not like the peace that the world gives. That's temporary. But I give you my peace, true peace. That's what I want in my life. That's what I pray for, for your lives. And that's what I pray for this world around us, that we could know true peace. It only comes from one place. His name is Jesus. He went to the cross, took your place, that you could have life and that more abundantly. Let's pray. Father, uh, just thank you for this look into the book of Ruth and, and just what a powerful, wonderful book this is. And as we look at loss this morning and, and your place in the midst of that loss, we, Lord, we, we don't rejoice in the circumstances, but we rejoice in you, knowing that 
that you, you Lord, are there to, to draw us close, to wipe away every tear, to give us meaning and understanding. So I pray for each of us, Father, that as we experience the difficulties that come part and parcel with this life, that you would give us a heavenly perspective, that we could know, Lord, that we've been in your presence as we look at things, as we hold them up to you and figure them out. So I thank you this morning for who you are, for what you're doing in each of our lives. I pray, Father, you would find people that are willing, actively giving you permission to just further invade the recess of our hearts. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Let's stand and worship.